Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Manhattan Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are delighted to have you guys join us for worship. Uh, today we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah, located in the Old Testament, so go ahead and uh, get that out. It's just past the Psalms and Isaiah, and if you've gotten to Ezekiel, you've gone just a little bit too far. We're going to be in chapter 15, verses 10 through 21. Uh, before we kind of get into the text, I want to introduce myself for those who don't know me. Uh, my name is Zach Brashears. Uh, I live in Manhattan with my wife, Jenna, and our soon-to-be child coming in uh, July. Uh, Jenna and I have been members at Manhattan Press for about three years now and some change. Uh, I work as a senior staff member with Crew Campus Ministry on K-State, uh, and I'm currently working on a Master's of Divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary. Um, wanted to thank uh, Brian and the other elders of the session for just giving me the opportunity to preach God's Word today. Uh, they've been faithful fathers and shepherds of my family, as well as I know many of you, uh, and we're just super grateful for them. Uh, I also want to add, uh, John and Brian have been meeting with Jeremy and I for like the last two years, uh, faithfully, uh, reading books together. And we've been through a grand total of one and a half books for two years. Uh, but they have been super faithful in pouring into us. And this is just one of the ways that they have given us the opportunity to learn. And so we're really grateful for them. Uh, again, we're going to be in Jeremiah 15, 10 through 21. Uh, so please follow along with me as I read aloud the word of God. Woe is me, my mother that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and treasures I will give away as spoils without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. O oh Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O, God, o Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and, if you, shall stand, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Turn on a light in our minds and hearts that we may see your word as you meant it to be seen. Let us not only understand it, but let it be at the forefront of our minds when we face suffering, grief, and pain. May we embody Jesus and his response to these things in hope. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. 
So as I was uh, thinking about this, uh, a story came to mind, and I, I thought, well, I want to kind of ask a question. So I was going to say, how many of you guys have been to an AA meeting? But I realized that is not the right question to ask. So I quickly realized, uh, I just want to tell you about my experience uh, with AA. So um, my, uh, I've gone with my dad several times to some of his AA meetings. Um, and uh, I remember a couple of years back, he invited me to his uh, second, uh, they call them birthdays. That's the day of uh, when you were uh, sober, how long you've been sober. So I went uh, to his second anniversary, his second birthday uh, for an AA meeting. And my dad goes super early in the morning and then these birthdays are like super late at night. This is like 9.30. So I'm, I'm driving down to my hometown in Wichita and my dad gives me these, this address and it's kind of in this industrial area behind this old outlet uh, mall uh, that doesn't have any businesses anymore and it's kind of behind it. So I get back, there's not a lot of lights and kind of just walk in the first door and uh, I walk in and it's low-hanging ceilings, the fluorescent lights, you know, the whole deal. Uh, and it's packed and there's probably 40 people in this tiny little room. And uh, there's a little podium up front and then, of course, you know, they have the a coffee in those tiny little styrofoam cups that's like blazing hot. So every time that you drink it, it burns your mouth and it's like really uh, watered down. Anyway, so I walk in there, I got this watered-down coffee. I'm sitting next to two guys because there wasn't any seats next to my dad. These two kind of gruff-looking dudes. And uh, I, I start listening to some of these stories, and they do it by, uh, by uh, seniority. So, and my dad has had two years of sobriety, so I'm waiting through probably 20 guys uh, tell their stories about how they became sober, about their life. And um, some of them were short, some of them were long, but I remember there was this one man that, that struck me. Um, he was in his 60s and 70s. Um, he, he started telling his story, got, went up to the little podium and just started telling his story about how he became sober. He had struggled with drugs and alcohol well into his 60s. He was in and out of sobriety uh, his whole life, uh, in and out of jail. Uh, he lived in a studio apartment. He worked as a janitor for a local high school. Uh, he had a minimum wage job. Uh, never got married, never had any kids. Uh, ne really had no family left in the area at all. Um, and yet this man sat up there and spoke of how grateful he was and how joyful he was. And, you, you know, you can tell when somebody's faking it, when somebody's just kind of saying that they're joyful. This guy really meant it. You could tell that it was the most genuine humility I think I'd ever experienced in my life. And I was really challenged by this but because for all intents and purposes, this man's life was a failure. Like he whiffed on life. He wasted his life. He didn't do anything that the Disney movies and the Hallmark movies tell us uh, that makes life important and valuable. I started thinking, if I was in this man's shoes, how could I see my life as worth living? I'd be crushed. I asked myself, how could this man's life be filled with any purpose? And, and I realized that I was not seeing this man's life as valuable and meaningful, regardless of what he accomplished. I wouldn't have said it, of course, and neither would many of us, but when it came down to it, I don't think I believed it. If my life resembled his, what I think life was still worth living. He went on to describe why he found such joy in his life. And, and he didn't wax and wane and pontificate on theology or quote memorized Bible verses. It was a simple faith. He simply talked about how he appreciated the days that God had given him, God's grace in allowing him to have any sobriety at all, and finally how he looked forward to a life to come because of Christ's mercy. I think this man understood God's grace in Christ and understood hope more than I think I ever will. And as we look at our text today, we're going to look at another man whose life will be seen as many by a, as a failure. 
The prophet Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet, and it's really for good reason. We'll see God's response to somebody in the midst of prolonged suffering and anguish who's angry at God for not acting. We'll see what gives life meaning and purpose when we are in the midst of suffering and failing in our life. A God who gently corrects our typical view of success, fulfillment, and hope from God and what we put our hope in. This is through listening in on an interaction between the living God and a suffering, disillusioned, and hopeless prophet. Now, if you're not a believer here today and you're kind of just wondering, I don't know if I believe any of this Christian stuff. I grew up on it. I don't know if I think it anymore. Uh, Like, if you're a doubter, uh, let me just uh, gently suggest to you that maybe you're not here on accident. As you hopefully listen, I I humbly ask that you would just compare the Christian's response to suffering to uh, that of yours as critically as you possibly can. The Christian's response to suffering, existential meaning, and purpose. Maybe for 30 minutes, let yourself hear God out. I want to suggest that you were made for more than to just live, retire, and die. If you think that you're here to just enjoy life until you die, might I submit to you that you can never have what that man from AA had. What if life is not as enjoyable as it could have been, and you reach your 70s having done nothing to seemingly give your life something that that gave you true feeling of fulfillment and meaning? What would give your life meaning then? Better yet, how can you look at that man from AA and say that he means something, that his life mattered? The recently passed away and probably the greatest theologian, pastor theologian of the last century, Tim Keller, once said that Christianity is the only way that one can have hope that suffering cannot take away. And Jeremiah is the case study for this today. But before we get into our passage, I want to kind of tell you a little bit more about uh, Jeremiah himself. So Jeremiah is born in probably one of the most tumultuous times in Israelite history. Uh, He is in the midst of a split kingdom, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom, called Judah. When he's in his late teens, early 20s, God calls him to the ministry of being a prophet. And these were just guys who who were God's mouthpieces, people through whom God spoke to his whole people. And this was necessary because the people of Israel and Judah, they were constantly disobedient and uncaring towards God, no matter how many times he called them to repentance. And their job was basically to act as a sort of mediator between God and the people, a representative of God to the people and representative of the people to God. Now Jeremiah is a prophet probably during the worst time in this tumultuous time in Israelite history. There's rampant injustice hoarding wealth, national pride that Jerusalem could never be defeated no matter how much they failed. And of course, this created complacency in everyone's relationship with God. All of this stemmed from idolatry and destructive religious evil. Jeremiah carries this theme throughout the entire book of of, uh, this image that we find in 2.13 that the people have left uh, this unceasing well, this well of water that is constantly gushing They've left that and decided that they were going to go build their own cistern, their own well. And it's broken, and it can't hold water. And he compares this to to Israel. They've left the living God, an unceasing water source, for their own water source that cannot help them. And God promises Moses, very early on in Israelite history, that if they continued to flee from God, to run from him in their idolatry, that their land would be destroyed that their blessing would be taken away and that they would be carried off into exile into a foreign country. Now this is meant to push them back to dependence on God. But that can only happen through judgment. 
Jeremiah has the job of being the prophet during this terrible time when this curse is fulfilled. And this grieves Jeremiah greatly. He's often called the weeping prophet. And as you get to the end of the book, we're going to see that it culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem, the raising of the temple, and the carrying off of people into exile, into Babylon, a foreign nation, the exact thing that Deuteronomy promised. Now this was written specifically to the Israelites and the Judites that are in exile in Babylon to read so that they would be able to make sense of what's happened to them. It was so that they would turn from their idols, their injustice and their unfaithfulness, and to turn back to God. And this brings us to our passage today. This is right before the exile happens, uh, right before God has sent a huge drought on the land. The people have cried out to God in anger, accusing him of being unfaithful to his promises. In reality, God tells them they are the ones who have repeatedly left him. And they have the ones, been the ones that have not been faithful. It is not him who has left them. God is clear that although they are forgiven, they will not escape the consequences of their foolishness. Such as an unfaithful spouse might still be forgiven, but still have to face the consequences of a broken marriage. Or a sorry child may still need the consequences of doing wrong. And this all culminates in chapter 15, where God pronounces the exile curse is sure to happen on his unfaithful spouse because they have not listened. It is a gutting passage where God speaks to Jeremiah and tearfully condemns Judah to exile. It is a truly devastating passage. And this is where we pick up immediately following this condemnation. So here we see a personal conflict between the prophet and the God from which he speaks. The father and a son, a king and a servant. So how does this conflict happen? How will the father respond not only to this conflict, but also to our own conflict and suffering in our own lives. So let me give you just a brief outline. I'm only going to have two points. The hopeless sufferer's word to God and God's word to the hopeless sufferer. We start in verse 10. Woe is me, my mother that you bore me, a man of strife and contention in the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. So Jeremiah has just heard a brutal word of suffering that's about to come on his own people, and he starts lamenting. He starts crying out to God in complaint with a familiar, woe is me. And we usually think of this as kind of a, a way of describing, mocking somebody who's constantly pessimistic. Uh, but this is not the way that, that scripture sees it. it. It's a cry of, of sorrow and frustration. But he says it, notice he says it not only for his, himself, but also for his mother, that she had to be the one that bore him. So he's frustrated that not only has uh, he been a burden to his own people, but he's also frustrated by their response as well. Because clearly, this message was not received well by his fellow uh, compatriots. They all curse him. So he feels like he has no allies, and in reality, he really doesn't. Aside from his secretary, Baruch, the guy who's writing this down for him, he really has no one. In Jeremiah 11, we even see that his own family attempts to kill him. They treat him as one who lends and borrows. Basically, he's saying, everything that's happening to me is undeserved, right? Uh, he's saying one who lends money to people and charges interest too high to pay, right? The equivalent would be like an unjust or uh, businessman or probably uh, more accurately like a loan shark. Uh, he says, Pe people treat me like that. Uh, he also says, people treat me like a person who's constantly asking to borrow money. Right? The equivalent might be that family member that's like kind of constantly entitled to your time and your money, right? That a little bit annoyed with. Yet people treat him as both a loan shark and a family member who's constantly trying to borrow stuff. And 
it's basically like people treat him as a source of frustration. That, that he wouldn't do what he's, that he's doing and uh, that he wouldn't speak God's rebuking word anymore. Everyone wishes that he wouldn't do it. And honestly, at this point, Jeremiah kind of agrees with him. He's complaining that he has to speak God's word and do this ministry. All in all, verse 10 can be summarized well by Christopher Wright. He says, uh, he was so disillusioned, Jeremiah was so disillusioned with his ministry because all he got was strife, contention, hatred, and cursing. So if that is what he had been born for, he wished that he had never been born at all. Now this is remarkably heavy, and, and I kind of want to just sit on this for a second. Like, our physical circumstances can affect our relationship with God as well as our mental health. Right? We can say that God deals really gently and mercifully with those who are wrestling with physical, mental uh, health. In 1 Kings 19, uh, which is a really comparable story, uh, God cares for Elijah, another disillusioned prophet, who quits the ministry and basically says, God, kill me. I don't want to be here anymore. And God sits him down, he sleeps, and he feeds Elijah. He cares for his physical, uh, physical needs before treating his spiritual needs on the mountain. So here we must be careful to see that God is treating Jeremiah spiritually and not physically, although there is a place for that. So we must be careful not to read too much mental health, uh, our modern mental health, into this. There's a place for that and even medication for some, but that's not what Jeremiah is wrestling with here. So we begin to see the core of Jeremiah's complaint. He sees his ministry as a failure. Everyone hates him and he feels completely alone. So what is his response to these feelings? To voice them to God. Instead of hiding his feelings or shoving them down, acting like they don't exist, he makes them known to God. This is something that Jeremiah is faithful to do throughout his entire life. Isn't it true that in our suffering, we're so prone to go to any other avenue before we come to the Lord? And there's a couple reasons for this. I think one of them is we don't think that he wants to hear it, honestly. Or that he'll be angry at us for, for speaking to him what we actually feel and think. So instead we hide it. Yet, don't we know that God already knows what we're feeling and thinking? So confession in this is just saying what's true back to God. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. So many times in scripture we see the faithful coming to God in their suffering and their hopelessness and laying it out on the table. And this requires faith and trust, not only that he will be merciful to us, but also that what he says in response is actually going to be helpful for us. Uh, Elijah does this in 1 Kings 19, right? Uh, the only comparable thing I can think of here is uh, in marriage, it's oftentimes easy for us to kind of get our heads stuck in something and get our heads stuck on a storyline. Like, oh, I, you know, I, my, Jenna didn't do the dishes because, I, you know, she hates me or she doesn't like serving me, right? And we get stuck on that and then every kind of thing kind of plays into that storyline. And oftentimes what we just need to do is just lay it out. Hey, you know, I'm kind of feeling like you don't want to serve me right now. And the thing that she can do is she can go, yeah, that might be true, but more likely she's going to go, no, that's not true at all. And the storyline you're believing, it's just not true. And this is the same thing that God wants us to do to him, to bring our complaints, our frustrations to God and let him dispel whatever we're wrestling with. Then we get to verses 11 through 14, and I don't want to spend too much time here, uh, but basically what we see is a preview of the judgments that, that God brings on the people of Judah because of their repeated unfaithfulness. He says, if you want to go serve other gods, go ahead. If you want to serve anything other than me, go serve your enemies. If you want to trust in your wealth rather than me, go ahead. See what it gets you. This might even be the very message for which Jeremiah is frustrated at God for having to speak. 
Babylon is the iron in this passage, right? Who can turn them away? The one thing that we see here also is about God's anger. And we're not usually used to hearing God's anger described this way. Yet, this is the correct response to the evil of Judah. Again, the example of an unfaithful spouse here is really helpful. When, the spouse, when a spouse finds out about unfaithfulness, if they were stoic and generally uncaring, we could say with conviction that there's probably little or no love between them. But if a spouse finds out about unfaithfulness and responds with jealous anger and tears at the wrong, we would say that that spouse truly cares not only about um, their, their wife or husband, but also about the relationship. And they're angered that it's threatened. And the same is true of God. God loves his people enough to be angry when they run off to other gods in their trouble. He loves them enough to be angry when they try to destroy themselves. If he did not, then he would not be a loving God. It also burns forever. We see that God's not just a spouse, but he's also a judge. He's also a king. He cannot forget injustice or he would be unjust. He cannot let evil go unpunished forever. And this is actually, as we're going to see at the end of this passage, a really good thing. This is why we need the wrath of God to be satisfied for us. This is why we need a God who took on the wrath for us in Christ. And whoever trusts in him can actually be saved from this eternal fire. Without an equally eternal salvation, no one can be saved. So how does, the Lord, how does Jeremiah start coming to the Lord to complain? Well, he starts in verse 15. Oh Lord, you know me. Remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. And your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. So he starts out with this phrase, Oh Lord, you know. He begins with a profound truth and a profound statement of trust. Oh Lord, you know. Anyone who has suffered understands how annoying it is when you're trying to talk to somebody about it and they say, oh, I completely understand. Usually they don't, first of all. And second of all, they usually end up minimizing whatever suffering you're really wrestling with. God is deeply present in suffering and injustice even when he doesn't feel like it. And he is actually completely understanding of what we wrestle with. I'm struck by the words uh, of, of Isaiah in Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save nor his ear so dull that he cannot hear. So for Jeremiah, it's not a matter of if God knows he's hurting. He knows God knows he's hurting. Or even a matter of if God can do anything about it, which we see next. He says, remember me and visit me. He's not asking God to literally remember him or literally visit him. But he's asking God to call him to mind, to do something about his pain. His social outcasting, his persecution, his pain of watching his own people destroy themselves. The pain of literally being a bearer of bad news, of God's judgment to a wayward people. He asked God, visit me. God, I want to feel your presence. I need to feel your nearness in action by temporal deliverance from this pain. And how does Jeremiah desire this deliverance? By God having vengeance on those who are persecuting him. We must be careful not to judge Jeremiah for this, right? He has endured decades of pain, persecution, social rejection, mocking, physical suffering. He's seen as a traitor and not a true Judite for pronouncing judgment. So he's grown bitter and he actually desires the judgment of God on these people. But he longs for revenge and Jeremiah knows that that's not quite right. So he brings it to God. He does not seek to take it into his own hands but he carries it to the Lord and he trusts 
that God was going to be the one to avenge him. And this is the re- correct response to feelings of revenge, right? It re- and requires a trust that God will not let evil be undone. He will not let it be uh, go unpunished. And again, this is why his judgment is a good thing. Then we see the next thing he says, uh, in your forbearance, take me not away. And it's an interesting prayer. If you think about it, what he's really saying is, don't be too patient. Don't sit there and do nothing while I suffer. Usually God's patience is couched as a good thing. Here it's couched as an evil thing. Immediacy is a sign of suffering. God, help me now. We want to be rid of suffering as quickly as possible. I remember I I was meeting with a student who had grown up as a Christian and then had had since really lost a lot of his faith in in action. And this was a lot of what his questions revolved around. He he asked me, why why doesn't God do anything about suffering? And one of the things that we talked about was that Jesus did deal with suffering on the cross. But that wasn't really what he was wrestling with. What he was really wrestling with is, okay, so God has dealt with it in Christ. But why do we have to sit in this in-between space between now and when God's going to fix everything? Why is he letting us suffer now? Why doesn't he just fix it right now? And this is really what Jeremiah is asking in the midst of his prolonged suffering. Why are you not doing anything right now? You know and you can, so why not? And finally, he reminds God of why he's suffering. Look, it's for your sake that I'm bearing this pain. He says, I'm doing all of this for you. Don't I deserve help? And in verse 16, we see Jeremiah continue this theme by calling to mind his original call to ministry in Jeremiah 1. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So he remembers back to his original call as a teenager. But the sweet joy of his original call has now turned bitter. Uh, We hear this theme of eating the word. We see it in Ezekiel and we'll see it again in, in John and Revelation. And Eugene Peterson makes uh, this make a lot of sense, this metaphor, because it's not a, kind of a weird metaphor. Uh, but basically, it's digesting the word, right? Uh, so that gives you the energy to do the will of God. It's taking it into your inner being and allowing it to motivate your actions. There's also a sense of he's dependent on it for his life. It's his food. It's the thing that literally keeps him alive. And at first he loves it, but, but now he kind of sees it as a point of frustration, Now the joy is no longer present to him as it was before. Why? Because unlike the people, he actually delighted in the word of God. He he said, look, I rejoiced in your word even when they didn't. Didn't Did I take joy in it for nothing? And he actually ends up twisting the Judites' own words from earlier. In Jeremiah 14, 9, they say, "Uh, we are called by your name, don't leave us. And Jeremiah says, no, I'm actually the one called by your name, don't leave me. And it's a true that, that eating the word is a sign of a true follower of God, but as we see of Jeremiah, he's heading down a really dark path with this. He started trying to show God all that he has done for him and why he deserves God's deliverance right now. In suffering, it is so easy for us to try and twist God's arm to make him act quickly. Easy to leverage our good works and try to get God to, God to have to help us right now. But as we'll see, that's not the way that God works. And we need a better response to suffering. He continues this in verse 17. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you filled me with indignation. So we see Jeremiah musing kind of on his plight. Because of your word, I have no one. 
I enjoy nothing. And it seems like it's useless. It's not even helping anybody. He contrasts taking joy in God's word with taking joy in the revelers, right? The party people. Uh, He didn't party with the party people who act like nothing's wrong. He, He didn't take joy in the failure of Judah. No, he sits alone. And this is actually exactly what Elijah feels as well in 1 Kings 19. He says, I, even I, only am left. Jeremiah tells God, I'm the only person who loves you anymore. And suffering does this to us, right? It has this particularly isolating effect. It feels like no one and no, no one will or can understand uh, our suffering. And so there's no point to even sharing it. In addition, he really is pretty alone like we talked about. Jeremiah is not allowed to marry. He's not allowed to go to weddings or funerals. And he feels deeply sorry for himself for having to face this uh, ostracizement, if that's a word. Jeremiah is in this lonely hole and he's spiraling. He believes no one else has suffered like him and his vision has become narrow. He can't see past his pain. I cannot because God and his word, his hand is the one who's causing this. He comes very close to accusing God of causing his pain. The word that brought so much joy is now a source of Jeremiah's pain. It's filled him with God's own indignation for the sin of his people. It it would kind of be like uh, us uh, going to Pompeii, uh, a block party in Pompeii in 79 AD, right? It'd be really hard to have any joy when we know what's coming. Pain and suffering uh, also has this tendency of manifesting itself in self-pity, right? And I want to be careful here, right? Uh, Jeremiah's suffering is not his own fault. I think, but we have a tendency of kind of looking down on other people's suffering in our own, right? Uh, I think in high school, I used to think middle schoolers, they don't know how hard it is, right? Whenever they get to high school, they're really going to see how difficult it is. And then when I got to college, I looked back at high school and I went, oh, those kids have no idea what's coming. It's really going to hit them when they get to college. And then when I've gotten past college, really easy to look at college students and go, they have it easy. What, they don't know what true suffering is like. And we have a tendency to do that as well. We look down on other people for their suffering because ours is so much worse. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is doing. In our pain, we often feel a license to wallow. Nothing else matters other than what I'm dealing with right now. And I deserve better than this. We feel that we deserve what we view as the basic. And as good Americans, we have rights. And God needs to respect that. But as we see, God is going to to gently confront this. Even if you're not doing full-time ministry right now, uh, it it is easy to feel like your life is not going anywhere in suffering. That you're just stuck, that everything you're doing is worthless and means nothing. And Jeremiah crashes to his lowest point in verse 18. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? In his grief, Jeremiah calls out to God, Why do I have prolonged pain? Why do I have a wound that will not cease, that refuses to be healed? And he he uses this image of a festering wound, and he's grown hopeless. He believes that his wound is incurable. His ministry is worthless and his suffering is meaningless. He's not so much frustrated with the actual wound and how it happened in itself. He's he's actually really frustrated that it just won't go away. And the same is true for us, right? We're, We're okay with a little bit of suffering, but when it keeps going, we get angry and frustrated. 
And he goes, look at all I've done for you. Do I deserve this? And it crashes in this mighty picture of an unreliable stream of water. Right? At this time, there's no running water, right? It's in the middle of a desert. And so they're dependent on reliable water sources to survive. And he asks God, are you unreliable? Will you fail me when I need you most? And he twists the image of the broken cistern that we just talked about, right? And asks God, are you a broken cistern? And maybe pushing it to its very limit, have I put my trust in the wrong God? And the rhetorical question is meant to be answered with a resounding no. That's not who you are. He says this because God has not shown up in the way that Jeremiah thought he was going to show up. And he asked, did you trick me into trusting you? Right? Did, I, did I come to the source of water and find water at one point, but when I come back, it's not there anymore? And, and he'll voice this cry in full in Jeremiah 27. He says, oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. He knows it's not true, but, but the storyline of God in his mind is pushing to his limits. Either Jeremiah is wrong or God is a liar. He had witnessed the goodness of God once before at his calling, but can God be relied upon again? And this brings us back to the key question of the text. How is God faithful when it seems like he is not doing what we think he should be doing? How do we trust him that he's faithful when he doesn't seem to be doing anything to change our circumstances? And what gives us hope when we're facing seemingly insurmountable odds? So now we turn to God's word to the hopeless sufferer. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. So God responds personally to Jeremiah. He is not silent. God has a unique encounter with Jeremiah. The, the thus says the Lord is usually for the entire people, but this one is meant just for Jeremiah. God often does not respond the way that we or Jeremiah thinks that he's going to respond. He responds unexpectedly, almost jarringly. We usually think that God will either respond with a burning anger. Why did you say that? Of course I'm not like that. Or we think he'll re- respond by, by saying, oh, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But he does neither extreme. God gently calls Jeremiah out of the pit into repentance. God says, return to me and I will restore you. We see that Jeremiah has been the one to leave God so that he needs to return to him. The people and the troubles that he's experiencing have gotten to him. He looks down on his own people with anger and frustration. Not only that, but God himself. His pity has gotten to him to to a place where he thinks his trouble is a result of God and God needing to repent. God hasn't given him his right, a life of only tolerable suffering. But God's goodness gently lifts Jeremiah's eyes. He says, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. It means that Jeremiah has left his sacred mission. He had not been standing before God. So where did he go? Where did he run off to? We see this in the next passage. Utter what is precious and not as what is worthless. The words that he had eaten so long ago, he had now forgotten. He was now uttering worthless words instead of the precious ones that he had started with. He had put his hope in a temporal, quick help. He had put his hope in something that was not God. 
he recalled his calling in Jeremiah 1, how God would save and deliver him. But over time, he forgot that, uh, and, and he did not see God, when he did not see God working immediately, he thought that meant that God wasn't being faithful to what he had promised in Jeremiah 1. But we see here that he had been operating not by trusting in God, not by hoping in him, but he saw himself as deserving of God's blessing and hoped in that, that his good works could be what made him have a life of, of only a little bit of suffering. And he was disillusioned when he got the opposite. He had accused God of not remembering his words in the beginning when it was actually Jeremiah the one who had forgotten God's words. As we will see, God never promised him that he was going to have an easy life. He actually told him to expect trials and sufferings. We can't earn God's temporal blessing nor do we deserve it to even begin with. Before God, we have no rights, right? He gives us breath, he gives us life, he gives us everything. Everything that we have from God is a blessing. And he forgot that and he became hopeless. Godly people don't suffer this much, he said. But God says the opposite. God tells Jeremiah, do not hope in things going well for you now. Don't place your hope in what you think I should do. Return to me and hope in me. In our suffering, we can place our hope in what we think God should do for us rather than actually trusting where he has us. God says, don't put your hope there. Put your hope again in me. If we put our hope in God, this is a hope that is untouchable by our current circumstances and it belongs in God, unchangeable and perfect. So God says, turn to, they will turn to you. You will not turn to them. He had become like the very people he was angry at. That he had been calling to repentance when really he was also the one who needed repentance. Jeremiah had put his hope in his own kind of broken cistern. But God is with him. He does remember him. He never forgot and he stands before the Lord. And we see in verse 20 uh, that God is actually reminding Jeremiah of his word in Jeremiah 1. This is actually a direct quotation from Jeremiah 1. God is just saying his word back to Jeremiah. You asked me to remember my word. Do you remember it? The word has a dual purpose, both to remind Jeremiah of God's word and to recommission him, right? To remind him and encourage him from his mission ahead, to not be discouraged. God calls Jeremiah back to his promises. Put, my hope, put your hope in my faithfulness. Trust me that I will do what I said I would do in the beginning. And then again, he sends him out on mission, which seems so uh, interesting, right? He sends a broken prophet right back out into the mission field. But we see this again in 1 Kings 19. Anytime that God meets with his people and he comforts them, he sends them out in the end. Elijah has this experience with God where, where he, he is suffering and he's disillusioned. God feeds him, gives him, him water. He has this amazing encounter with God on the mountain. And God really only says, what are you doing here? Twice. And then he just commissions them back to go into the mission field. It's weird, right? We don't expect that. But actually, that's what's best for us. He wants to lift our eyes out of our own pit of suffering and to see other people's as well. We see this with Paul, right? Paul is saved and he's immediately sent out into the mission field. Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he says, woe is me. And he ends with, here I am, send me. God reminds him that actually our suffering is what makes us strong. And he is the only one who can make us strong in suffering. Without hoping God, there's no possibility of Jeremiah being able to get through this. 
As we look back, Jeremiah, he was actually told that his life would be, uh, would be impossibly difficult. He reminds him that people are going to fight against him. This is what Jeremiah was told in the beginning. And James also tells us as, uh, as a fellow Christian that we're going to face trials and troubles of many kinds. Why then are we surprised and disoriented when they come upon us? If, we're not, if the only reason is that we are hoping and just not having trials at all. But he will make us into a fortified wall of bronze. God will strengthen him for his ministry ahead. Finally, God reminds him in verse 21 that they will not win in the end. He says, I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. God adds one more word. This, uh, verse 21, is not in Jeremiah 1. This is God's new word to Jeremiah. And he's speaking to Jeremiah exactly where he's at. He is acknowledging his pain as real and unjustified. He calls them wicked and ruthless. He says, they are wicked, they are ruthless, but I will deliver you. He reminds him that it's not God's hand that has caused his suffering, but actually the wicked and the ruthless hand. God's hand is what is going to deliver him. And God reiterates his promise and applies it directly to Jeremiah's position. His persecutors will not get away with this. There will be a day where God will judge those who have persistently chosen evil. Wrongs will be set right, and those who have relied on their own cisterns will reap what they sow. We see in the end uh, that Jesus himself embodies what we should hope in. Jesus not only asks us to trust him in the midst of suffering, not only asks us to hope that, that in our suffering we're actually going to be made strong and it's going to help us on our mission, he not only asks us to do this, but he does it himself. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, lived a life that was worse than Jeremiah. God uh, sends his son Jesus, called a man of sorrows. His life begins in a stable and on the run from a ruthless ruler. Jesus was fought his entire life by Pharisees and religious rulers. He was a man of strife, stricken by grief. Jesus knew that they not only would fight him, but they would defeat him that he would die shamefully exposed on a cross by those who, he, who hated him. His enemies would triumph over him. Jeremiah bore the reproach for God, but Jesus bore the reproach from God. Everything that makes us hideous, all of our idolatry and our wandering, he bore that reproach for our sake. Jesus was the ultimate image of God using the weak to shame the strong, of sending somebody who was weak to make his power made perfect in weakness. He submits to death by those in power over him, the ruthless, power-hungry religious rulers. He served his, an his enemies in a land that he made. He is weak and broken on a cross. Not only is he brought to the edge of defeat, he is brought to the ultimate enemy, the lowest point that one can reach, which is death. So Jesus is the only one who is qualified to ask this of us. When Jesus is raised again from the dead, we see God showing his absolute mastery over evil. Not even the darkest point could defeat him. His raising from the dead means that all of our evil died with him and that we are raised with him as well. He became weak that we might become strong. He was abandoned by God so that we don't have to be. And his resurrection means that there's hope for life to come. Babylon will be defeated in the end. We can also trust that he is going to be faithful because of the cross. Jesus is called the word made flesh. In Jesus, we have the ultimate word, the ultimate reminder of God's faithfulness and love and suffering. This is how we trust in him alone. 
it makes him ultimately trustworthy. If he was willing to do that for us, if he was willing to keep his promise to save us even to the point of death, even death on a, on a cross, what could there be for us who now put our hope in him? So a couple of reflections I want to say. God hears our cries of complaint and conflict with him, right? He can handle it. He's gracious to us in it, and he already knows it. He's present in our grief and suffering and our anguish and lament. And this is actually our strength. As we feel weak, we know that God loves to use the weak. God answers every single conflict in himself, in his word, specifically in his promises. He is faithful to his word no matter what. And this is faith, that he is faithful. Our hope must be in him alone. And God works at his own pace, even if it feels like he's not. God loves to use the disillusion for his own purpose. He always recommissions. He always sends us back out with a renewed faith and a zeal for his work. God will execute his justice and his timing. Evil, death, and persecution are defeated enemies in Christ, and they will be defeated someday. All of our work is not in vain because of Christ. And as you look to the end of the life of Jeremiah, the end of the life of Jeremiah ends with him getting carried off to Egypt against his will and dying there. He's sent off to exile, right? We look at his life, and it was a failure. But as we look, we're reading Jeremiah's word today. It continues to minister to the people of God, right? Even if we don't see it right now, God is using what we are wrestling with for his own purpose, for his own glory, and for his people. This is what is true. So in your suffering, as you are facing suffering, turn to Jesus, put your hope in him alone, and trust that he is going to make a way out of this, even when it seems that there's no way. I keep remembering the psalm where it says his way is through the sea, his footsteps are unseen. We don't see God, but his way is through suffering, not around it. And that, that's what's true uh, because of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, Lord, let us be patient in trials. Let us repent of our pity on ourselves. We're so prone to anger at you, yet we are the ones who often forget your word. Thank you for your gentleness in Christ. Thank you for your word. Cleanse us, lead us back to yourself. Let us weep with those who weep and show us how to use our lives well for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.